reading from chapter 2, from verses 1 to verse 5. Colossians chapter 2, reading from verse 1 to verse 5. Then after that we'll go straight into the sermon if folks want to grab a comfy seat. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may de- delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am w- with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So, this morning, I want to begin by asking imagine for a second that the church was kind of like a can of beans. Okay? That's got people's attention. So, with this metaphorical can of beans, if you were to cut it open, open it up, and have a look inside of it, what would be the kind of things that we would expect to see in it? And naturally, it wouldn't be the world's most disgusting food, which is beans. But what would be the things that we would see within it? What kind of things do you think make up that which is the church? In our verses, I think we've got quite a few different things which are vital ingredients to that which makes up God's church, his people, its identity, and what it should be like to be part of that community. So... As is is the custom, there are three points. And the first thing I want us to consider from these verses is what Paul says here, that he is striving. Striving. He has a struggle for them. That their hearts may be encouraged. One of the things that Christian communities should be is communities of encouragement. Now, I want to begin this by reading a story. Now, I thought this story was so unbelievable, I actually had to check it was true. But it turns out it is actually true, and this did actually happen. There was a chap, his name was Eric Musambi, and he was of Equilateral Guinea. And he was an unlikely hero of the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, Australia. Now, I don't know if anyone remembers this chap. And maybe, as I, yeah, we've got some that remember, Rob remembers. Now, he was a 22-year-old African that had learned to swim only nine months before the Games. Had only practiced in a 20-meter pool without lane markers and had never raced more than 50 meters. The special program that the Olympics had that permits poorer countries to participate, even though their athletes didn't actually meet the standards, Musambi 
had been entered into the 100 metres men's freestyle. Now let's remember this guy had only ever swam 50 metres and he now finds himself in a 100 metres men's freestyle. When the other two swimmers in his heat were disqualified because of false starts, Musambi was forced to swim alone to qualify. He was reportedly, reportedly charmingly inept. He had never put his head under the water surface and flailed wildly to stay afloat. With 10 metres left to get to the wall, he virtually came to a stop. Some of the spectators thought that he might even drown. That's how serious this, this was becoming. Even though his time was more than a minute slower than that which qualified for the next level of the competition, the capacity crowd at the Olympic Aquatic Centre stood up and they cheered him on. After what seemed like an eternity, the African reached the wall and clung on for dear life. When he had regained his composure and caught his breath, he said through an, an interpreter, I want to send hugs and kisses to the crowd. It was their cheering that kept me going. And I think that when Paul is speaking of communities of encouragement, this is precisely the kind of thing that he is talking about. Communities that cheer one another on to a finishing line that each of us knows is there. Calls by Christ onto a race which is a challenge to live faithfully, to live obediently, which can be the biggest challenge because God will challenge us with what he calls us to do. To overcome the obstacles, the barriers, the challenges that life brings so that we keep on going. That is the kind of encouragement that I think Paul is hoping for in, his Christ in, in these Christian communities. Now, I'm not saying that at the expense of the more normal kind of encouragement. Now, normal encouragement, I would say, is when we actually intentionally seek to encourage one another, to build one another up, to say nice things to one another that help us and give us confidence. Now, I'm not saying that we let go of any of that whatsoever. I think encouragement is one of the most important things that we do. And I think, I remember not long ago, when, when I was at one of the house groups, we had to do this. We had a bit of blank paper. And on that blank paper, you were to write an encouraging thing about the person. Now, I can't remember quite how it worked. But basically, you were to write an encouraging thing about every single person in the room. And every single person would then receive this bit of paper with, I think it was maybe, about, there was maybe about 10 people there, with 10 things that were intended to be an encouragement for the person. Now I would imagine that everyone would have kept those bits of paper. And they would have kept those bits of paper for a reason. Encouragement is actually quite important. And here is an illustration of that. Another example I found of the power of encouragement. And I'm sharing this to reinforce that normal, in fact, I wouldn't even call it normal, intentional encouragement is absolutely vital. And it says this, One Friday in a break from work, the teacher asked her students to write down the nicest thing they could think to say about each other and hand it in. 
She compiled the results for each student and on Monday gave out the lists. Several years later, one of the students called Mark was killed in Vietnam. After the funeral, many of the classmates gathered with Mark's parents and sister Marissa for lunch. She was the teacher. Mark's father took a wallet out of his pocket. They found this on Mark when he was killed, he said. He carefully removed a folded, refolded and taped bit of paper on which the teacher had listed the good things that Mark's classmates had to say about him. Other students responded. Charlie smiled sheepishly and said, I keep my list in my desk drawer. Chuck's wife says, Chuck put his in our wedding album. I have mine too in my diary, Marilyn said. Vicky reached into her pocketbook and brought out her own frazzled list. Lists. And the only value of them is that they have encouragement on them. So as we think about being communities of encouragement, and as we think about really trying to encourage one another when it comes to this race and this faith that God has called each of us on, it's not at the expense of this kind of encouragement that builds one another up. It's hand in hand, both things vitally important as we continue to try and do what God is calling us to do. And I wonder... In what ways do we experience that kind of encouragement that Eric experienced? These moments when we might find ourselves feeling perhaps that we are 10 metres away from that finish line and we've run out of energy. In what ways do we get encouraged by our brothers and sisters? In what ways do we encourage our brothers and sisters? You will know the answer to those questions. But it's vitally important that we do so. That we seek to help one another grow. To remain motivated. To remain focused. There are so many things in this world that can be a distraction. And can cause us problems. As we seek to live faithfully for God. And there are different ways that we can help one another. I would encourage us all to have discipling relationships within the church. People that we intentionally encourage, that a relationship is based on encouragement and challenge when times are difficult. That we plug into things like house groups, little parts of our church that meets together to do these very things, to encourage one another on our walk of faith. that we speak to one another about the challenges, the difficulties, that we encourage one another, especially if we think we're struggling. Every week, now I love the fact that we go through for tea and coffee every week. It's great. We get to chat with one another. Often there's pretty good cakes that people can enjoy as well. And it's a time of encouragement. But I wonder how, how often in that, that time, which is a real blessing to us all, do we use it to build one another up and to encourage one another? And to actually ask, how is it going as a follower of Jesus Christ for you? And to talk about the faith that we all share. 
our faith that each of us continues to try and journey and grow in. So we're to be communities of encouragement that strive to encourage one another. That we experience something similar to what Eric experienced in those last 10 metres in that pool. The encouragement, the motivation, even the energy that can come from knowing other people that are with us, supporting us and willing us to complete whatever it is that we aim to do. And we're to be united in love. And this is the second thing that he mentions in these verses. Being knit together in love. And I think this is one of the most dominant themes throughout the whole of the New Testament about what the church is to look like and what the church is to be. That it is to be founded and built on a unity that is based in love. Now I have to say, knitting isn't one of my skills. I don't know how to knit. And to me, the, the, the whole process looks so complex and confusing that I, I question whether it's even possible. I don't have the coordination for it. I can finger knit. I can do that. But that only requires one strand. What knitting does is it brings together different strands. It brings them together in such a way that they make something whole. Or that's the intention anyway. That that's what happens. Whether it is a scarf or whatever it might be, you're bringing together two, three, I don't know how many fabrics you can possibly knit into one garment. As I said, I don't have a clue about it. But what it does, what it accomplishes, is something whole. Something complete. And what Paul's hope and intention for every Christian church on the face of God's earth is that there is this experience of being knit together, being brought together, being made united by love. This is his hope for the church. Now that doesn't mean uniformity. Because if you look at something that's knit, like, oh wait, this, for instance, this is knitted. And this thing is what's literally keeping my heart going this morning because otherwise I would freeze to death. But if you look into it, despite the complexity of all that's on it, it you can still see each and every strand. And I wonder if I could probably even manage to poke my finger through some of these. So despite the fact that it's one, Everything is still distinct. And that, I think, is what the church is like as well. Every single one of us is distinct. We have different interests, different thresholds for cold, different music tastes, different careers, different preferences in food and drink. We come from different backgrounds. Lots of different things that make us distinct. But the thing that is to unite us, is one. It's the love that we have for one another that we've learned from the love that Jesus has shown to us. And that's why you read in the Bible, we love because he first loved us. We learn it from that revelation that God has revealed 
to us. And I do wonder how great the church worldwide is actually taking hold of this. This, this seems simple. But we all know it's not. Because you put personalities in, you put all the different tensions that can arise about living in community. And this kind of thing is actually a real challenge. And sometimes I think churches can be tempted to take shortcuts. And they will try and use other things to create this kind of unity. So you would see, for instance, doctrine has been used at times to create unity. Churches that will have this rigid statement of faith that every single person must sign up to. And that becomes their pillar of unity. Rules can be used that are passed down by church leaderships that are intended to create some form of unity. Constitutions can be used to try and create some form of unity. But beyond any of that, there is one authentic unifying factor for God's church. And that is that it is, uni- that it is united by love. And we know that because Jesus tells us that. Jesus says, the world will know you are mine by how you love one another. That's what he says to his disciples. And Jesus says in his prayer in John chapter 15, that the world will know that the Father has sent the Son based on the unity of his church. So what Paul is saying here is very much building on exactly what Jesus said. So unity is to be gained and built on by love. And I would actually say for that there is no shortcuts. It's a journey. A journey of learning, of growing, of challenges, of difficulties. Like any relationship. But one in which that which we're seeking for and that which we're seeking to use is the strength and power to do these things, we gain from setting our eyes on Jesus. So, united in love and defined by Christ. And this, I think, is the key thing that Paul is trying to get across to these people. A lot of people are arguing that some of the language that he's sharing here reveals actually this church is at threat of very early heresy, a heresy which was called Gnosticism. Now this heresy was one which argued that matter, wasn't, matter was evil and therefore God couldn't become matter. And it also proposed as really this alluring special knowledge that people could attain if they did specific things and for Paul to be saying in in these verses the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge he seems to be challenging that kind of view that there is something beyond Jesus to be found and that if you do these specific things you will find it he's telling these people to swerve something they aimed to offer that which they already had, which was Jesus Christ. And this is why you see him saying, I'm saying this in order that no one deludes you with plausible arguments. Their arguments may be logical, but they weren't right. Because the finale of truth and mystery is revealed 
and only Jesus Christ. And that is where people are to look. But I asked myself, well, okay, that's the threat. The threat the church was facing was this concept that was beginning to develop and would actually cause the church problems for, for a good few centuries. But one of the, the, the founding appeals of this seems to be this, this special knowledge that could be gained. And I pondered, well, why is that alluring? Because that's one of the questions I think we have to ask when it comes to these threats. Okay, well, what about it? What about it means that it's actually tempting? What is, what's it tapping into? What's it touching within a human being that we think that is appealing? What's this advertisement, in other words? You know, if you look on any advert, it's designed in such a way to tap into specific things, whether it be insecurities or how we want to express ourselves as, as, a, as a social being when it comes to our status or our wealth and all these different kind of things. But what about this kind of teaching would tap into a Christian in such a way that they would be willing or that they would risk, or that they couldn't even see that they were swerving from the revelation of Jesus Christ into error. What's going on there that's causing this kind of thing? Because it's only when we work that out, I think, that we can actually address the question, well, how does that speak to people today? And are there similar threats that face the church today? So what about that? If I was to come up to you and... Okay, there's not a box about. And I'm not going to make one. But say I had a box. And in this box, I was to to say, I have special knowledge in this box. And if I give it to you, you're going to be enlightened. And you're going to know something that others don't. What would be the temptation of that? We might think, oh, no, I don't want any of that. But the first thought would probably not be knowledge is a bad thing. But what is the temptation? I think, or certainly from my perspective anyway, the temptation of that is if somebody is offering something that others either don't have or would be unable to attain, that that gives us a sense of feeling special. It would give us a sense of belonging actually to something because we have something with this group of people that all these other folks don't have. It could give us a sense of even feeling superior to other people. Look at him, he doesn't know that. Shocking. That, I think, is the lure of what was beginning to develop as a heresy back here and would plague the church for a good few centuries. And I wonder, has that inclination within humanity changed? If I was to come up with that box and say, then this box is special knowledge which will give you an enlightened status separate from everyone else around you, would that be tempting? Yeah? No? Yeah, it would be. It would be. And why? Would that be tempting? Probably for very similar reasons within us as what it was for them. The same kind of reasons. 
that it would help us, it would give us maybe a little esteem boost that we're needing at that time. Maybe we're feeling a bit insecure. This could help us belong to this group of people. That's how cults work, by the way. That's how they're so effective at drawing people in because they create this huge, powerful sense of belonging and love and acceptance. It can make us feel special. It can make us feel superior. I think every human being on the face of this earth is yearning for things like recognition because it validates us. For belonging because we are social beings. We're created to strive to belong. And sadly, and honestly, there is the truth that we are sometimes yearning for power. For that feeling that we are in control of something. And that we can exert control over something. And we see this play out from the most basic levels to the highest levels of our culture. Let me give you one completely ridiculous but entirely valid example of this, okay? Now, one of the things I like to do to try and blow off steam is there, there is a game I play, okay? And it's one of these games where you're, where you're strategically battling with others and there's strategy and all that kind of stuff involved. Okay, you've probably seen an advert for it on television, um, and I'm not going to advertise it any further than that. But in this game, everyone's ranked. So you're, you're minions, you're useless people, and so on and so forth. And you see even the language I'm using is revealing something. They're rank one. And as you learn and prove yourself and, and, and begin to belong to what's called an alliance, a group of people that work together, you can raise up the ranks. And eventually, if you really prove yourself and you meet certain criteria that is decided by the leader, you can hit all the way up to the, the high ranks of rank four. And within even that, is that allure to belong, to be validated, to try and climb up these ranks, to get to this rank four, because when you're there, you've proved yourself. And you have met certain standards. Yet, it is a complete illusion. And I wonder, what do we think defines us? Let's keep pressing this point for a second. If we're talking about belonging and identity and validation, one of the important questions then is what defines us? As I look around this room, I see parents, I see grandparents, I see students, I see architects and oil workers and teachers and runners and mechanics and somebody yawning and all sorts of different definitions. Yet, I want to really push us to consider that what defines us above all else is Jesus and knowing him. As Christians, what, what, when you come to church, what do you think defines somebody as a better Christian than another? Because we all have different classifications in our minds. Is it how we dress? For instance, me and my constant cardigan. Is it what we know? For instance, how many people could name every single book of the Bible straight off the top of their head? Or know where this and the next verse is? Do we use that as a classification? Is it what we do? 
the more we do, the better we are? Is it our position in the church that somehow classifies the kind of Christian we might be? Or how good we seem? That's a perfectly valid one we might think. How good we seem? How often we get along? How loud or how well we sing? What are the things that we would think define us as Christians? It's the same answer I would argue is what we would give that defines us as people. The key thing is knowing Jesus. For Paul, he writes, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The key thing, the defining thing, the thing that actually makes us Christian in the first place is the fact that we know Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And this gives us a status. And it gives us a status to all this other stuff that might appeal to our insecurities or, or whatever it might be. Because it gives us the status of being accepted, of being loved, of being children. Adopted into God's family. Of being heirs. Heirs. Alongside Jesus Christ. Of being his disciples. So. One of the temptations we will always face. I think. Is to seek. And to look. In the wrong places. For recognition and validation, esteem, confidence, worth. But one thing I am absolutely certain of is we will all find all these things and more and in abundance in Jesus Christ as we continue to grow in our relationship with him. We must see beyond these kind of things and the rest that they might be and see that that temptation to look beyond Jesus to other things is one that we must ensure that we resist. My message to us is very simple. Seek Jesus. Seek Jesus. Get to know him more. Grow in your relationship with him. And one of the most remarkable things each of us will find, and, have no, and I have no doubt have found as we've grown in a relationship with him, is that these insecurities and these yearnings that we all have for things like validation are met in him. And always, always will be. He, in him, is that knowledge and that mystery revealed. So seek him. Get to know him more. Trust him. Grow in your relationship with him. And he will be intrinsic and core needs each of us have. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you above all else for this revelation of the mystery that is Jesus Christ. That in him all 
all wisdom and knowledge is found. And Father, we just pray that as your children, as followers of Jesus Christ, that this would be something that fills us with yearning and excitement and enthusiasm. That we would seek after our Saviour. Seek to deepen our relationship with him. To grow in our knowledge of him. And to have that hunger and thirst in our lives to continue to do that. And Lord, may we be communities that encourage one another to do that. Create space for and with one another to do that. And to and a, and a community, Lord, which continues to grow in our unity. Built on that foundation, that, own, that sole foundation of, un, of love that we've learned from you and reveal and show to one another. So Lord, we pray that from what we've pondered this morning, much like Eric who had to sit and fix his eyes on that finishing line, he wouldn't even duck his head under the water so he know that he didn't lose sight of it, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, the offer and perfecter of our faith. And that each of us, Lord, would continue with enthusiasm and vigour the race that you've called each of us on. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite the band to come forward. We're going to stand now to sing our closing.